Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me two wonderful guests, Laura Camila Barrio Sabogal and Solveig Richter. Solveig is Professor of International Relations and Transnational Politics at the University of Leipzig, Germany, co-editor of the German language Journal for Peace and Conflict Research, and is interested in post-conflict societies and peacebuilding. Laura is a PhD researcher at the Peace Research Institute of Frankfurt and former program director at the University of Rosario in Bogota, Colombia. She is a lover of nature and running, but I've managed to capture her here with me today. So welcome to the both of you. Hello, Laura. From my side as well. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Yeah, it's great to have you here with me. So I'm going to jump straight on in because you've both done a lot of work about conflict and post-conflict and particularly recently in Colombia. So I want to ask each of you, and I'll start with Selvig, what makes Colombia such a compelling case for you? <laughs> That's a good question because, I mean, I was previously working a lot on the Western Balkan regions on post-conflict processes in the Western Balkans. And I started to work at Brand School with lots of international students, which broadened my horizon. And then with the peace process stepping in in 2016, actually, I get the attention of the country, which is in such a, um, so to say, interesting case to study for post-conflict peacebuilding with all its ups and downs, you know, with a referendum, the plebiscito, the negative vote on it. And then I had the wonderful occasion to have Berlin student, Laura, which were... Yeah, I mean, she was so keen also to study these processes of post-conflict reincorporation processes. And so we, well, it was a wonderful opportunity for me to step in and to learn something about the country. And I literally fell in love with not only the country, with its people, but also, so to say, with, with the peace processes such to study. So that was when I started to work on Colombia and why I do think it's a super interesting case. Incredible. And what about you, Laura? Yeah, no, for me, it's super nice to have here Solveig in this podcast because I think we have different approaches. She has more like the outsider view, which is highly interested, interesting and also like important in these processes. And mine, which is like the insider one, the local one. So I do think like the um, a conflict in Colombia or the case study Colombia is very interesting. The historians might have very a lot of controversies about what happened and which is the year of the beginning of the conflict. But regardless that part, we will say that is one of the longest armed conflicts in at least in the region. But in the middle of that and this protected conflict, we have felt a strong, so I wouldn't say strong, but something like moving democracy in the country. So we have this democracy and we we are one of the strongest economies or we were in the in the region so how conflict is like behaving with these good indicators of country stability so i think it's a very very yeah useful case study to understand how a conflict uh, behaves and how a conflict transforms itself and with the peace process as solvey already said I think we got the attention of many, many scholars, including myself, local and international. And it's because, as she said, it's a, it, it was not only a huge event for us as Colombia when we got a lot of 
a hope regarding like we will change this country and the situation and uh, we would recognize what has happened here in the last or more than 50 years and it was really a window of opportunity uh, to be really hopeful about our future and also because people started to ask how how was possible to finally get an outcome, a peace outcome with the FARC guerrilla, which was, yeah, since uh, the 64 arms. So how they changed like the arms to the politics and to the um, civilian life. So I think all of these uh, research questions were very, very interesting and very necessary in that moment. And they are still very important because what we have seen after the peace agreement is, unfortunately, in the beginning, it was good because all the violence rates diminished. But now we have seen, again, how they are increasing other types of violence, but still post-conflict violence. So I think Colombia, in all the phases during the conflict, during the peace process, and now in the post-agreement, I wouldn't say post-conflict, but I will say post-agreement phase is that. Like very, very interesting case study for the peace and conflict studies field. Mm. I find it really interesting how you raised almost two very different puzzles here, because one is it was in conflict and yet things are moving and improving democratically and rights-wise and otherwise. So that's a really strange tension and really interesting as you've raised. And then on the other hand, you're like, oh, well, now we're in this sort of post-agreement situation, but there's perhaps problems with integration or something that's leading to further conflict, do I understand correctly? Because I know you've both written a couple of papers along these lines, and I'm really interested to dig into those. And so the one I would actually like to start with, you wrote a paper together called Las Varianas, which was about integration of specifically female FARC fighters back into, I guess, normal society. I mean, how did that actually work? What was it you were looking at there? Mm-hmm. So I, I I will start because that was my thesis during the master and which was supervised by Solveig and then I will give her like the word. Uh, but our interest or, or my particular interest was because when we think about war, we think mostly about men, men in war, because we have this binary conception of like men are violent perpetrators and they do war. And on the other side, we have women as just like peaceful victims and peace builders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you see in a conflict and in a protected conflict like the Colombian one, you see that this binary frame was totally challenged by these fighters, these female fighters in the guerrilla, not only in FARC, but also in other armed groups, but particularly in FARC, because um, what I wanted to see was like, okay, of course, many people already have known which were the role of these former combatants, but what's happening now in the transition to peace and to the civilian role, what's happening? Are they losing all the agency or the yeah, the, the power they got within the guerrilla or the transforming it? So in that paper, we both explored how was this transition from the war roles to the peace roles of these female former fire combatants. And taking into account that they were 
very percent of the guerrilla members, it was important to us to understand this female perspective of the reintegration process. It's also very acknowledged that during the, this DDR progress, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration programs, the most difficult part is the reintegration one because it's the long-term one that you need them to get a job or, or to get all the skills in order to become like a civilian and to have a sustainable life in this civilian environment. So what we have found so far was that they held many roles, important roles. They also were in the combat. They were not only like cooking, like it happens in other groups, for instance, in the paramilitary groups in Colombia, but they had really important terms there, not the highest one. I have to, to, to admit that they never went in the up, like it's called in Spanish, Estado Mayor, which is, it was like the highest decision making instance in FARC. No, but they have in the local parts, some leading positions, which have been transformed so far. When you go to the places where they have been reintegrated or reincorporated, because FARC doesn't say like <laughs> reintegration, but they use reincorporation. They are using those skills to lead uh, many projects, productive projects, to run in the local politics, to run their uh, important leadership strategies in the communities. So I think that that was important to see how, at least in the beginning, because I, I'm talking like this paper, we did research in 2018. And so it was really in the beginning, just in the beginning. So I think like, my hypothesis now is like this leadership has been strengthened more in the past years. But in the beginning, it was like that. They were transforming their skills to act in a peaceful environment. I can step in and widen a little bit or broaden a little bit the perspective because, I mean, you raised two important questions, Laura, right? So first of all, what's happening after a conflict and how can it be that these processes create new conflicts itself, Right. And I think we have to, to stop thinking in binaries. We have to stop thinking in, okay, we have a peace agreement and conflict stops. And all these processes afterward lead into one direction, right? It's a linear thinking. And it's like, yes, of course, it's embedded in this northern thinking of making peace agreements and it all is fine. But no, the local level is totally different. We have networks. We have long war-term networks. We have rebel governance during conflict. So we have a transitions at a political decision-making level, do not mean that we have these transitions at local level. Yes, we have completely different incentives and completely political structures, but still we have a strong continuity also from the war, starting with this paper, which created our curiosity, right? Because this creates also strong interpersonal linkages, which provides opportunities after war, right? So we it's this, this this perspective that everything falls apart and that we created right from the scratch and all is new. It's not right at the local level. And so what this paper, the Svarianas, gave us, at, or me at least, I mean, Laura was right embedded from the beginning, but also me, this perspective of, no, we have to get rid of this binary or dichotomous understanding of war and peace. But we have to look more into the dynamics at local level, what happens here. I think this is also this level where exactly women can have a transformative role beyond any mere symbolic, right? I mean, 
of course, we have strong tradition in Latin America and Colombia of this machismo, and we have women in leadership positions, but often it's more symbolic positions, right? Where often they have very symbolic roles. But how this agency really brings into a transformation of conflict is something that matters a lot. And how especially female leadership can step in at local level in this transition from a not always war, but we have also areas of peace during war or during violent conflict into peace, but also not full peace because we have, of course, societal conflict and continuous, so to say, battles over the right interpretation or, or conflicts about what's happening on the ground and the continuing of war economies, like, like all that. That does not happen overnight, right? It uh, doesn't. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> what a surprise. Exactly. So, and, <laughs> and, and to look into that black box, opening up, focusing on one specific group of people and how they contribute to peace building, I think this is an enormous academic interest and we have mm -hmm. to learn more and that's what Las Farianas brought us into. <laughs> okay, look, that's really interesting and I want to get into your second paper shortly or, or sorry, your recent paper shortly but I also just want to find out for a moment because Laura mentioned that FARC prefer not to use the phrasing reintegration but rather reincorporation which gives me some strange ideas about either businesses or the body. So what is actually the politics behind this framing? Thanks for asking that, because it gives me the opportunity to clarify this reincorporation term. And it's like when we were, or not we, but uh, when they were in the Havana process in the negotiations, FARC said, like, we don't want the same process as the previous one. Colombia has been really recognized worldwide for the DR processes, mm -hmm. uh, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration uh, processes, because we have, unfortunately, had many, many actors um, who demobilized. And then there was a long process, institutionalized process of reintegration. Mm -hmm. I, FARC said, no, we don't want the, the same process because the previous collective process was with the paramilitary groups, which, of course, were like opposite to them. And also because in these programs, uh, the Colombian government as a strategic war firm, they started to say people, look, of FARC and uh, the other guerrillas, demobilized. Your family is waiting for you. Or war doesn't pay. And many, many people left the guerrilla with these programs. And so they thought like they were traitors of the cause and of the guerrilla. So they say, we don't want to be mixed with these other people. That was one of the reasons. So we also want a collective project. When we say, and that was not only with the term reincorporation, but also with, we are not talking about disarmament in the peace process, but we are talking about they laying down the weapons because that was their will. They were not defeated on the battle, mm -hmm. but they wanted, there was a peace will. So they said, we are laying down our weapons, which is in Spanish, entregar las armas. So... As they were saying, we are doing this on a voluntary basis. We are not saying that our collective project and our political project will be now over on the country. We are mobilizing to the political project. So they said it's going to be collective because we are going to have a party. We are transforming the guerrilla into a political party. 
And the third point was we don't want this to be without the communities. If you see the peace agreement, you will see communities are in the middle of the peace agreement. Regarding the DDR process, it's only for FARC, but the other ones, they contain uh, many, many measures for the communities. So that's why they say, okay, this process is going to be the reincorporation of FARC into the communities because we never left them. We were with them during the war also, which is related to these rebel orders that we are going to speak later on. But yeah, that's why we decided to put this term, which is very interesting in the way that actually the process is different than the ones that have been held worldwide. That was beautifully put. Thank you, Lara. That was very helpful. No, it's really fantastic how you've just highlighted the role of language as being particularly key in this whole process and in the peace accords. But, but I want to jump straight in now to your other paper because the moment I saw the title of this, I was like, all right, I'm going to need to get Laura onto the podcast and she convinced Solveig to come on as well because you wrote this paper called The Dynamics of Peace or Legacy of Rebel Governance. Patterns of Cooperation Between FARC Ex-Combatants and Conflict-Affected Communities in Colombia. And you've just highlighted this role and centrality of communities in the whole situation, the whole peace accords. So I'll turn to Solvig first. I mean, what was this paper about? Like what made you go, all right, we're going from Las Farianas, where we're talking about the integration of female combatants into the community to now going, oh, let's really dig into this whole idea of rebel governance and how that comes together with the community in this post-peace accord era. I mean, the first point was when we were in these reincorporation camps. Well, we saw a world which was somehow wonderful functioning, but separated from the rest, right? And we initiated processes of community meetings. So we brought in for some focus group discussions, some of the community members that lived around this reincorporation camp. And we realized, well, that's not done on a regular basis. They do not meet that often with the communities around them. So why? How come? They have so many skills. There were so many questions arising out of this, this small observation that interaction is not happening on a daily basis between ex-combatants on their way to get reincorporated as they frame it or reintegrated in the academic term into the society. And, and that was the curiosity or that caught our attention in the first place. And then, as Lara mentioned previously, this reincorporation was a collective one. But of course, not all were in a collective process. So we also met on a, and this is, sounds very academic now, on a comparative case basis. We had to compare also and were curious, how is this reincorporation process happening for those who decided to do it individually? Is it totally different? And from our first observation, and we had some, we were not only in one case, but then we moved on to another area in Huila, in, in Algeciras, and we Right from the beginning, we saw that this, these are totally different processes. So it didn't need a lot of to cause to catch our attention, to bring the topic a bit further and to talk about like these transformative processes in different areas, in different processes, in different types. I mean, it sounds like very academic, but of course, we were always integrated into the field, immersed into the field, so to say, since 2018. And then until we published a paper and we were in the field also with another project last year. I mean, we were in Laura specifically also during the pandemic from time to time, before and after, continuously keeping up the relationship to the ex-combatant and following up this process 
of transformation, but in two totally different areas and in totally different processes. And that was actually what, what mattered a lot for us, which brought us then also to the argument and to the paper of this transition that we have to look at the local level and to say and to argue, no, it's, it's different. It's different with the communities and it matters how reincorporation is happening also in terms of different elements. You've actually just made me really curious, and this is going to show I clearly have not read the Colombian peace agreement, but you've just mentioned, well, Laura just mentioned that community is essential in this peace agreement. So like you've just mentioned that not everybody is integrating or reincorporating the same way. I mean, if you've got sort of communities at the center of this peace agreement, but I guess not signing the peace agreement, how do you actually get them involved and to agree to this reincorporation process? I mean, at one point, which you have to keep in mind, I mean, during the violent conflict, and Laura mentioned it, over the long period of time, I mean, Las Farc, the FARC has been a government, a field service provider also. So it was already integrated into communities. I mean, we do not start from Las Farc as a criminal organization that is detached completely from what's happening in the communities. No, 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 no. They were well integrated. I mean, they were not only recruiting from campesinos and from for people somewhere voluntarily, of course, also going into the armed confrontation or armed la lucha, so to say. And so interactions during this conflict happened and they were controlling territories 200%. So, and how does this translate later on into new governments, new political arrangements on the ground? That was what was interesting. But I think Laura is also smiling and she... She wants to step in and is already very curious also to to share her opinion about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for that. And when we say like individual basis, doesn't mean that they are not attached to the communities. On the contrary, it's like when we see what happened from 2070, when we had all these yeah, demobilization camps, they transform into the reincorporation camps. And then so many people starting to leave these ETCRs, as they are called in Colombia. Why? It was not because they were just like, I oh, know, I want to, to have this individual reincorporation part, which is not the same as the other groups, no, like in the reincorporation phase. It was because these zones were established in remote areas with the problems in our rural zones in Colombia with no access to water, to electricity, to the public services, with a lot of security issues and a lack of job opportunities. So they said, okay, we need to have means of life. And so they started to leave these spaces and they started to gather in the regions where they were from or where they wanted to get. And when we say in this case, this Algeciras case study is super interesting because, yes, it, it is individual as the state doesn't recognize it as like reincorporation camp, of course, and it doesn't have the services and all the institutional background that the other ones, the formal ones. But uh, ex-combatants there, they started to do themselves some networks with the community and in the implementation of the productive projects, they started to, you know, like involve the communities. That's why we found these two different models or <laughs> uh, types 
of orders, which were like, like the cluster ones, and the entrenched social orders. When you see the two differences between La Montanita and Algeciras, you will find exactly one, which is the institutionalized one, the collective one where there is a reincorporation camp. And when you see there the collective path of reintegration, you see that there, because of this collective path, less interaction on a daily basis with the communities is more like institutionalized. Like when they say, sit together and we design all the strategies for their reincorporation with the communities. It helps also within the vulnerability of those spaces. And I forgot like to say what other of the um, facts or the elements where people started to go away from these reincorporation camps was not only because of this lack of public services and so on, but also because they started to be killed. And that's an important factor in this process when they started to be assassinated and they were, yeah, afraid, of course. But you see in this cluster, they are less vulnerable <laughs> to security issues. In the, on the other hand, you see like the Algeciras one, which is like the opposite. Um, when they don't have like this institutional protection, so to say, more like individual pad, of course, with more interaction because the communities, they are on the daily basis sharing with the communities. They are in the communities, actually, but it means more, much more vulnerability. So I have here to take this opportunity of this podcast to say that we came to this argument and to this paper because one of the ex-combatants we were working with was killed. And it was like... I still think it's hard when you see like in a peace process, a window, as I said in the beginning, of opportunity to be very hopeful about the situation in your country. When you go to the field and you start to see these people, of course, you cannot say they are just angels or something like that because it's finalizing all the violence. But you see the efforts to become peace-like agents and for instance, this person was leading a, like a productive project regarding X, like X. And it was really very, very interesting. And then when I read a message that he was killed, it was really for us hard. And that's why I think we also came to this paper to understand all the violence that was around the communities or in these zones. Mm. And so... I, I mean, I obviously don't want to trivialize the, the situation, but I just want to bring this back to an analogy if I can, just so everyone listening can stay with us, right? If I understand correctly with these two different models, one is kind of like a summer camp, but obviously not very peaceful, right? You know, it's structured, it's institutionalized, people go there, it's safer, but it's maybe not so integrated into the community locally because you're in your summer camp, right? Whereas the other one is more like a fishing trip in a horror movie where you go there and you're going into town occasionally and seeing people so you have more contact with locals, but also, I don't know, the woods are full of bears or something. Is that a reasonable analogy for how these two different models work? So is just laughing at me and going, what well, is Well, it's a little bit, I mean, it, it's not a summer camp and a horror trip, right? So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a little bit, I mean, I, I mean, you're getting it right in, it, in terms of, yes, the one thing is, Really, they are living in their camps. And so they, they establish structures them there. And 
it's not on a regular basis meeting to the, to the communities initially, right? So the process is there. So we have also to look into what's happening now. So they are now Centro Poblado. So they developed into real hubs. And during the pandemic, we found out, for example, that these clustered reincorporation camps were also an important site of community help during the pandemic, for example, right? So they were opening their little schools, they had Wi-Fi, so they were opening up for the communities. Hmm. So, and that was very important, but they could do so because they had, what Laura described previously, right? This strength, this cohesion, this institutional support structure around them. The other side, like the individual paths, we have that a lot as well in rural areas like Algeciras. And here it was very it became very dangerous and violent for the combatants because there was a lot of stigmatization happening. So, so of course, this area was still one where you had the dissidencias. So you had a lot of armed groups fighting for the control of the territory. Mm-hmm. And every time something happened, also the local population or the mayor, politicians were like blaming also ex-combatants for that. So the stigmatization happened on a daily basis and made things worse. But it's not a horror trip, so to say, because you also have many other cases, for example, in cities. Also, I mean, ex-combatants were a lot integrating into cities, right? So we do not have reincorporation camps in cities. But if we look, for example, in, in Medellin, they were also a lot pushing forward um, socioeconomic projects there in these cities on an individual basis. And it's a failure of the state not to protect them. It's not a horror trip as such, but... They were pushing a lot inside the communities forward and there, there were less distance between the ex-combatants and the communities in an initial stage. So what we have to learn from that is protection schemes matter a lot. And also the role of the state that or the implementation of the peace agreement and the failures that brought them to the stage. So the prospects were there for a also successful reincorporation. So that's one takeaway, right? The other one is also key to say, you said at the beginning, the, the government and I mean, there were many critiques who were arguing, look, these collective reincorporation camps, there will be new camps for recruitment, for rearmament. This will form the basis for an opposition. I mean, a rearmament process of the whole group. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't been that much. To the contrary, these collective reincorporation camps were indeed also key to transform some of the areas, not all, because we cannot speak about all Colombia. Colombia is so different and not everything what we speak in the paper applies to all reincorporation camps. We have to take care to, to take that small footnote here. But some were transforming into Centro Poblado, so into real, real community or centers that function well, that have some infrastructure and are able to bring forward some small scale local development. So, and we have to understand that these expectations both were, for some reason, which we argue in the paper, not happening as as the government were expecting or were afraid of, but also these individualized, they need more protection and inputs from state, from the outside. Thank you. That was beautifully done. So I want to get back then to the challenges of researching in environments like this. Because, I mean, Laura, you mentioned that you had this ex-combatant who was unfortunately killed during these reincorporation processes. And so like you also highlighted that Laura has developed these long-standing relationships. So you, I suppose you both have 
in order to do this research. So what are some of the challenges that come for you personally or to the research project as a result of working in these kinds of environments, which are so plagued by violence and structural issues? Yeah. So I think the first challenge is that you have to take into account the security development of the territory where you are doing field research, because sometimes you can, even if you want to, you cannot go. And if you go, and I'm super thankful for that with Solveig, because she had much, much more experience than me in field work. So she was really guiding me in this process of doing research. And we established really important like protocols to do field work. And I remember the first time, first visit I did in La Montañita, that was the first territory. I was always writing to her like, okay, I have now the opportunity to go to another community, which is far away and this and this and this, what should I do? And so these things are reporting and saying like, okay, I do have a contact person, which is not in Colombia, which is an outsider, and she can help me with this and this and That's super important. But I think coming back to the challenges is like, yeah, how to do research in a context that is not, unfortunately, peaceful any longer and how you can deal with the violence that is being increased in these zones. But definitely, I think it's worth you. Of course, there are regions where you definitely cannot go and that happened Last year with this project, we also did, but also with another project I was conducted. It was like, okay, there are some regions where you definitely cannot go because a tip or a very good practice to do furious research in conflict-affected communities is to have a really local partners who can tell you if you can do it or you cannot do it. And in many times with the elections, because we had last year elections for the president and for the Congress, violence arose. And they were saying, sorry, no, the, the situation is right now not the perfect one. It's very risky, so just stay there. And then when they said, now you can come, we went to the field and it was really good. So I think it's important also to listen to these local partners And as I said, to have protocol with your team and to say, okay, if this happened, what we are going to do. And I also realized because last year I did a lot of field work, a lot, a lot, a lot. And in a certain point, I realized with my team that we were overwhelmed. So it's very important. And I say here to have psychological support because Mm -hmm. like this ex-combatant who was killed was the beginning, but then you also are with the communities and they are telling you stories about victimization, about like many, many uh, things they have gone through. And you also listen to the ex-combatants who were also victims of certain kinds of violence. You are listening to many, many, many uh, horrific, I will say, things that happen. And in a certain point, you are really charge and this affects you this affects you and so i did that last year with my team we had also psychological support and it was super good and relief so it's called yeah i don't know (laughs) i I forget the name now in 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 english but it's like if that primeros auxilios psicologicos like like, a psychological context exactly exactly first aid 
psychological contact, when you can see that's important. Uh, yeah, so I think, yeah, the challenges are huge, but you can deal with that, definitely, because as I said, it's important to do field research, it's important. And talking about long relationships with them, something that I have implemented since I started to work at Solway was like this um, participatory research. So to involve them in the research process, to involve them in the outputs of the research is important. And so that, that's why I still have contact with them because they know that if I get any project or if I get anything, I go back to them and I say to them, okay, I have this, what we can do. And so it's important to have also like a long relationship. And that's why I'm now also doing my PhD regarding this violence and the reincorporation part. But it has allowed me to do the PhD because I have held these long relationships with them. Yeah, maybe to add on that, I mean, um, Laura described perfectly her perspective also from the local level. And I think at some stages, I remember we were together in field research and it wasn't that easy to sometimes also differentiate between you are part of that, right? I, I remember there was a, a victim ceremony and they were asking all, all participants in the space to participate. And I said, no, 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 I, I can't participate. But Laura was saying, no, I am participating because I'm a Colombian as well. I'm part of the conflict here in this in this country. So it's my country. But I said, no, I'm not part of the conflict. I have to keep the distance. But I think also that this partnership helped to navigate through these situations. I mean, you always have to understand when you go through the field, you become part of a community, a part of something. So you also have to manage expectations, right? So, and you are sometimes really a, a, a white elephant in a room in, in some of the communities. Of course, everyone is seeing you coming, even if you have a low profile. And, and so, I mean, this academic background protects you a little bit. Of course, but you also have to take care to manage expectations in the field. Why are you coming? We're just publishing papers. Something like just, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> publishing papers for what? So, of course, you also have to, I mean, and that's what we, we realized during the fieldwork, to communicate this, that you give visibility, right? So that bringing also communities together, this participatory action research, bringing them in as part of this research, these communities, visibilizing their grievances or their opinions at a much higher level in Bogota. Or, I mean, we had many, many workshops where we then were bringing it to the political level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So bringing it also back maybe to Germany and to the attention of some of the policymakers. And that's what we can do as researchers, but we have to be transparent about that, that we are not working with communities just for extracting knowledge. And I remember we had in one of our projects, tough discussions with the Afro-Colombian communities. They were really saying, oh, come on, you come here to extract our knowledge. Mm. And we were saying, no, no, no. I mean, for us, it's important also to bring something back then to the communities, even if it's only our analysis and our assessment. The second point I wanted to mention is, of course, it was much different for me coming from, from Germany, right? I was not that much immersed into the field because I could only travel from time to time. I'm not able to do ethnographic research because I have a full-time professorship in Germany. So I have to teach and all of these obligations. So I was often coming only for sometimes one or two week basis. And sometimes from the outside, it seemed, well, I'm this typical Northern researcher flying in and then everything has to prepare for me. And everything is beautifully nice and everything has to work out that I go into the field 
and then the nante and everything has to work out. So that was also sometimes problematic. But at the same time, I, I mean, for me, it was important to, first of all, make my own opinion, not to rely on any outsiders and to establish relationships as well. I mean, I, I think that the communities realized, of course, that I was taking sometimes a five-hour road trip to go to the communities or took a long flight and then took a, a motorcycle or whatever, right? So that you do this, that you invest also, and you go to the communities to listen to them, to work with them, even if it's only for a short period of time. And I think that's helped. And again, also Laura to continue with the relationship because they were realizing, no, they take us seriously. They do not want only to make I don't know, money with knowledge or something like that, but they are really interested in our destiny, so to say, what's happening here on the ground. And when Laura mentioned security issues, I mean, this is a very important issue. And I have, from my side as professor, I've supervised many PhD students in areas of really hot conflict. I remember one of my PhD students calling me, oh, I'm on the borderline between Darfur, between Sudan and Darfur, and they are asking me to give them all my data. What shall I do? And I was sitting in a nice and warm apartment or back home in Germany. And I learned, what can you advise someone now on the border that got interrogated by police in the floor? And so, of course, these are some protocols you have to follow. You have to prepare yourself. And when when in a paper there is written, okay, you have done I don't know, 10 interviews, focus group, this one or two focus group discussions. A focus group discussion is taking maybe two hours, maybe three Interviews can take one hour. Okay, you calculate it makes two, three, four days of work. Forget it. Yeah. I mean, field work means a lot of preparation, a lot of follow-up, as, as Laura said, debriefing, mentally prepared for field work, physical, to be physically exhausted. So, and I think it's worth, but the work behind that is where it goes into preparing and ethically um, participatory field work needs a lot of preparation and a lot of time. And I think if, if people are really collecting primary data and it will be more important with this artificial intelligence, chat GPT things, right? To really go and see instead of trusting on some artificial intelligence. Uh-huh. But it needs time. So if PhD students are just going into the field or other students are going into the field collecting data or we as senior professors are going into the field collecting data, that means a lot. And I think we should highlight that, appreciate that when people invest that energy. And even though there are also ecological aspects which you have to keep in mind, right? Flying in and out and all that. And sometimes it's the argument is made, well, you can do everything online. Why not? There is a pros and cons to this, but we have to keep in mind the whole picture of it. And of course, we have to be sensitive to our ecological footprint as well. But keep in mind that it's important as well. To, to, to go. <laughs> I just want to emphasize that there are a lot of, you know, westernized methodologies here in, in the academia. So you have to be really reliable and they have to be testable and, you know, like all the... Oh, I do. <laughs> exactly. All, all the parameters, like the elements or whatever, or the indications you have to follow in order to be an academician. But with the communities, that doesn't work the whole time, you know. You go there with your product, for instance, and I know if I go there with the paper, as we have written, they are not going to understand which yeah. two types are you talking about, whatever. 
So I just wanted to encourage also diverse, diversity in the academium. And of course, we are always measured by how many papers to publish, how many books and everything, which is also important. But in order to have like this long relationship with the communities, you also need to hear them and you also need to know like what's important to them. To them, it's not important a paper. To them, it's not important a book. Uh, to them, I, I will share experience here with project and it was like they wanted a map of the territory that was made with them and for them. And it was like social cartography, you know, in the territory in Kakitka. So the point is not always it's about academic papers and everything. There is a bridge, you know, and we are a bridge. We can like connect the communities with decision makers locally and internationally. But we also, uh, well, I think we have the duty also to bring them what they need to have or they're willing to have. Super. No, I think you've made a really valuable point there about the need for field work because, yeah, it's so easy sometimes to go, oh, I could just do a survey online, everything will be fine. But then you've highlighted both of you, the rich data you've gained through having these ongoing relationships that do have that face-to-face time. But I want to go back for a moment because you've mentioned a couple of times this increasing violence in this most recent period. And I was wondering, I mean, what kinds of violence are we talking about? For example, are we talking about increased domestic violence or are we talking about reignition of violence along former combat lines? Like what's actually happening there? Yes. Uh, No, we are talking about violence with other armed groups. You see in the paper, in the last paper we wrote, fire was almost in all parts of Colombia, particularly in the southern part, but also in the northern part. So once they demobilized, they left a power vacuum. And that power vacuum was started to be disputed, to be fulfilled by other armed actors, including dissidents of the FARC, who gather either they say in the beginning of the peace process, no, we are not doing a peace process, or after the peace process, they said no, they are not. They were not comfortable with it, and they started to to gather in these dissident groups, which is quite normal in all the peace processes in the world. We have dissidents of FARC, but we also have the transformation of some groups of the paramilitary with the mobilization of them. So these new groups and the old groups started. All groups, I will include here also the ELN, which has been also a guerrilla since the X64, but it was not as big and as powerful as FARC, but they are also disputing the territory control in these zones. What we see now is this confrontation between these groups and the state or between them, which led to increased violence. We are not longer seeing the huge massacres, for instance, that were Unfortunately, very worldwide known, eh, like these massacres that the paramilitary did, or we are not any longer seeing a lot of violence, but we are seeing a selective violence. And it means not only they're assassinating former combatants, but they are also assassinating social leaders that were not related to far, but social leaders means people who have a leadership in their communities or that they were implementing the peace agreement or they are environmental leaders, human rights defenders. It's a a large or a broad meaning of social leader, but 
what we are seeing is more selective violence. Of course, there are massacres, but it's more like five people. It's not longer a huge killing of people, but it's like, yeah, selective things and displacement. It's what we have seen. They are just saying, okay, this is our territory now. You have to leave. But to be honest, that's, as I said, that's what I'm right now researching in my PhD. So maybe... In four years or three years, let's hope for the best. I will come back to you and see uh, and tell you, okay, these are the paths and this is what I have found so far. <laughs> Super. I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. And I guess part of the reason I ask about this reincidence of violence is that it must be taking a, a psychological toll on people to perhaps have this moment of hope with these peace accords finally after so many years and then violence starts reigniting. Is that something you've seen in your discussion so far with ex-combatants? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, and this is my political perspective, not my researcher perspective, I have to admit that. After the peace agreement, the president who came into the place was right-wing president Ivan Duque, who was not who didn't want to implement the peace agreement because he didn't agree on the peace process as such. So it did a lot of damage into peace process because, of course, he had to implement it, but he started just to implement it really slowly and with a lot of obstacles and everything. And yeah, it, it made an impact on not only the ex-combatants, but also the communities in the service we have implemented with a survey in the communities, there is a particular question that it says, do you agree that the peace process brought positive changes for you in the community? And in the beginning, when we started to implement these surveys, people were like, yes, yes, yes. Like, And now, last year that I also implemented some of them, they were like, no, no. So the no started to gain like more weight and or to be more powerful than the yes and you see even myself as a colombian i'm a little bit like when when i see like the news when i read them it's like uh, when i know that i was able to go safely during the first five years of the peace agreement to some places and now it's like okay i have to ask the locals can i go what do you think it's really complicated and I see that there is, yeah, I wouldn't say people are not not, not longer hopeful, but they feel a little bit disappointed. Mm. I, I think that's the word. But Solveig, she might have another opinion, so I, I love to give the word to her because I know we are totally different in that sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were... <laughs> Yeah, reflecting on the last years has always been that I'm overly optimistic and Laura is overly pessimistic sometimes. <laughs> I mean, critical, not pessimistic, but but more critical. And I I always step in and see the commitment of people, the dedication of the people, the, you know, what they can, despite this hardship of conflict, despite the direct, so to say, affectation by violence, what they are still doing and delivering and how they are still creative and how they are still totally committed for their life. So it always gives me positive energy, right? So to see someone under these conditions can survive these conditions, can establish resilience, or can even in a very positive, in a very prospective sense, 
create society and want to shape the society of the future, right? And that's what you find in the field. That of course you find these very critical, pessimistic views, these also which find of course their reason in the non-implementation of the peace agreement. I mean you can concretely say, okay, for example, the non-delivery, non-assignment of tierra of land to ex-combatants re incorporation camps has created problems of economic individual development or projects, right? So you can follow every trains, every step, right? That was not implemented. You see, of course, that how it affected, right? The communities and the local level. But on the other hand, my impression is that they do not want to give up, right? They, they just don't. I mean, one point is many said, well, in face of all these difficulties, many, many more combatants will rearm. Yeah, but actually they did not so much. There are some peace dividends that come out of it and be just a simple positive life. So in peace and, and create something and to get the opportunity to create something. But I, I, I totally agree with Laura after my five years that we, my positivism and my optimism needs a bit more critical reflection in terms of what it really delivers on the ground and how protracted this conflict is at the local level sometimes, that we need definitely new approaches for coca substitution, right? Or, or all of these elements, and that they all play hand in hand, that you just cannot come in and solve one single issue on the local level and forget the others, because the others will be the spoilers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you do not solve properly coca substitution or substitution programs, local development programs, of course, they have no income. If you do not, do not solve infrastructure problems, they might have the best pinnable project, but they cannot transport the pinnables to the markets, mm-hmm. right? So, so you, you have to think the, this local level peace dynamics more inclusively and more from a, I wouldn't say interdisciplinary perspective, but from all perspectives, bringing them together. And in, in some areas, it's different than in others. But but still, I, I, I still have a positive view seeing all despite all these difficulties the dedication and commitment of people on the ground for this peace process and that makes me always in a yeah i appreciate it and i i think this prospect of peace is still there even though people realize the outcomes are less than we expect and i also want to ask you laura i mean i know that you're obviously heavily immersed in the colombian conflict and research of the colombian conflict but do you think that there are things that people in other conflicts could learn from the work you've done and from what you've seen on the ground in Colombia? Yes. I mean, I think for protected conflicts, it's very interesting with what we have done so far in Colombia or researching Colombia. But I think like every conflict has particularities that cannot be like overlapped or just generalized. Even if the Colombian one cannot be generalized, imagine with the other ones. But I think the discussion we have in the academia, liberal peace, hybrid peace, so on, it's important. It's important to understand, for instance, now in Syria, where they are really trying, like since long time ago, to conduct peace negotiations and everything. Okay, even if the conflict is totally different and everything, what was good in the case of Colombia and also with the transition and with the reintegration of former combatants, 
that can be also used like the good practices that we experience and that we had, they, how they can be also useful to adapt them to other conflict contexts. It's like, you know, what we have learned, for instance, from the Liberia, um, I don't know, Northern Ireland, Sudan experiences of reintegrations. These experiences have helped also to the Colombian conflict to find the proper tools. So I think by researching Colombia and knowing these good practices, we are going also to learn or to adapt them to other conflicts so they can be or end in a positive way. Well, look, Solveig, Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. And for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? Where can you find me? Usually in an office in Leipzig <laughs> and sometimes in fieldwork in Colombia yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or somewhere else or conferences. No, but I'm, yeah, just a uh, University of Leipzig. I'm also on Twitter, Twitter, Solveig Richter. So I, I think, yeah, all these are ways to contact me. Fantastic. And Laura, what about you? The same <laughs> Twitter, my email, and the brief, uh, the Peace Research Institute Frankfurt. And uh, yeah, those. <laughs> Brilliant. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com.